Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corporate Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. And I am coming to you here on this Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio. So once again, I suggest that you check out my website, CorbettReport.com, so that you can go through the archives there of all of the, uh, the previous radio shows and podcasts and interviews and videos and articles and all of the stuff that I've been doing over the past five years. Once again, it's meant to be an information resource for people out there, so I hope you're using it as such. And on that note, once you're there at CorbettReport.com, you will also, of course, find a link in the link section to one of my other main websites, FukushimaUpdate.com being updated on a daily basis now uh, on the Fukushima situation, and we have had some pretty crazy things going on there this week, as as is unfortunately usual for us here in Japan, getting crazy information on a daily basis from Fukushima. And, uh, for example, we had more confirmation of urine that had has been detected in children and even infants in the Fukushima area, the, uh, sorry, radioactive cesium in the urine of children in the area, including infants, but uh, but the doctors say don't worry because uh, children have a higher metabolism, so the radioactive cesium just passes right through them. So there's not really any significant health hazard. Well, uh, make of that what you will. There's also some other interesting reports. There was a report from a think tank uh, earlier this week talking about the possible collapse of reactor number four in the containment for the spent fuel pool, which is housed in the, uh, the reactor four complex. And, of course, the spent fuel pool is where thousands of rods of fuel, uh, it's called spent fuel, but, of course, it's still highly radioactive, is uh, is being stored still currently, and uh, the collapse of that would be, uh, well, something of global global significance, as that report goes into some depth and detail about. So I suggest you check that out also on FukushimaUpdate.com. And then another big story this week, a Japanese Parliamentary Committee report came out uh, saying that, oh, by the way, the Fukushima thing was all man-made. It was a man-made disaster in the sense that uh, it was poor maintenance, poor planning, poor etc. that uh, that led to the disaster and that it could have been prevented if TEPCO and the government regulators had been doing their job. So a pretty pretty important, pretty significant uh, admission by the Japanese parliament there. Again, I hope you'll go and check out on FukushimaUpdate.com. Once again, it has it is being updated on a daily basis now. It wasn't for a while there, but I am back on it. Um, primarily because, I obviously, there's a lot of people who are still interested in this issue. It obviously hasn't gone away. And uh, I keep getting asked to do interviews on the subject. So, uh, absolutely, it is an important topic and one that I do want to continue covering. So, I will be uh, updating FukushimaUpdate.com on a daily basis. Go there, check it out. And on that note of uh, media interviews on this subject, there I'm going to address that in the last uh, segment of tonight's radio broadcast. So uh, stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, it is Friday night, Friday night highlights, where we uh, are highlight basically work that I've done at CorbettReport.com. So uh, that's pretty much it for me for this uh, broadcast, except at the end, the very end of the broadcast, where I'll be back to uh, to say goodbye and to say some things about what you can do if you want to help out in the work that I'm doing. But until then, we're going to be listening to In Order. Uh, first, a, an interview that RT, Russia Today, conducted with me a few weeks ago now on the possibility of radioactive contaminated materials washing up on the shores of the United States, on the western shores there. Uh, we talked about that. Uh, it was a big, long conversation. As far as I know, that report never aired in any form, but I was recording that interview on my side, so I will share that with you guys. Uh, then in the, the next segment after that, we're going to listen to a little bit of uh, an interview that I did on uh, legalizefreedom.com. 
uh, talking about Fukushima and the ramifications thereof. And then in the final, uh, well, in the next segment after that, we're going to listen to the full edition of a uh, a very interesting interview that uh, that uh, was conducted again with me by Danish national television DR2 that uh, that wanted to talk about Fukushima and what's going on there. They only aired about one or two minutes of that footage in their report, which I put up on my YouTube channel. But I will play the uh, pretty much the whole interview for you. So a ton of information tonight. I hope you've got your pen and pen paper with you. If not, go to corporatereport.com/radio for the show notes for tonight's episode. But that's it. Uh, so uh, I will talk to you again at the end of the broadcast. Until then, enjoy the interviews, and uh, and I'll be right back after these messages. The, the coastal uh, system of Fukushima is such that they're very strong currents, and that gets carried a very long way. So, and there was a lot of, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, a lot of. Uh, release of radioactive material into uh, the sea around the area. But, I mean, radiation attributable to Fukushima has shown up more or less all over the world. It took a while, but, it's you know, even the southern hemisphere um, and all parts, you know, it's central Europe, all sorts of places it's showing up measurable. Now, how much of a threat this is, we don't know, because I remember well when Chernobyl happened and there were measurable sources I was living in Ireland at the time and they, they measured radiation in sheep flocks there and for only recently where restrictions on certain types of um, you know, sale and processing activity were, were lifted. So we're, we're looking at a situation where Japan has got its own situation to face very serious but there could be all sorts of ripple effects from this and um, you know globally which is going to, uh, who knows, if we're still living with effects from Chernobyl, who knows what, what the effects of this will be long term. Absolutely right. I, I, and I, I think that's that's an, exactly the, the case. I mean, we, we don't know what the, the long term effects are, but, but exactly uh, as you indicate, we have seen demonstrably the, the radiation has been detectable in, in, uh, throughout the northern hemisphere especially and and as you say into the southern hemisphere so so this is a, a global problem and I, I, that goes back to the point that you were making before why has not why has the international community not stepped in to have uh, some more of a say over what's going on considering the way that this has been managed so far or should i say mismanaged with the uh, some of the things that we've seen taking place and uh, and that's a, a very good question. Um, certainly, I'm I'm not one for these types of international bodies that that presume to have authority over enacting in local cases, because often we see the types of uh, the types of uh, collaboration and uh, conflict of interest that happens, for example, between the Japanese nuclear industry and the Japanese nuclear regulators. We see that type of collusion writ large in those types of international organizations. And I think that might go to more of the reason why the IAEA and other institutions like that have, in their own way, a vested interest in not not playing too much into this disaster, because the end of the nuclear industry is, to a certain extent, not what bodies like the IAEA are interested in doing. They're interested in perpetuating the, the industry itself. And that's reflected in such things as a, 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 an agreement that the IAEA has with the WHO, the World Health Organization, not to investigate each other's areas. So that's, that means to say that the World Health Organization won't pronounce on the, the medical 
uh, effects of, of nuclear radiation from these types of crises because that's an IAEA area. So they get to work with the nuclear industry to, to try to set some of those standards and some of the, some of the uh, techniques that they have for, for setting, uh, establishing safe levels of radiation. So we see the types of uh, collusion and things going on at that level, and it's just, it's, it's really quite confusing, I think, for, for someone at this level, just a regular citizen who's wondering what to do, how they can even really influence or affect this situation, which is having an effect on the globe as we speak. Mm. Well, in terms of the nuclear industry and its future. I mean, I, I was sort of gobsmacked uh, because I didn't have background or inside information when Germany announced uh, that it was going to basically, you know, cancel its, its nuclear program, which is quite well advanced. Um, I, don't, I, I didn't think on one level that sort of politically uh, that that would be allowed to happen because it was such a red flag. It was such a significant decision. But of course, we see other, as I understand it here in the UK, for example, plans to um, to upgrade and um, create new nuclear facilities are moving forward. So at a, at a cursory look, it seems a, a bit of a diverse situation. But, um, I mean, w- what did you make of the, uh, the Germany decision? Well, uh, absolutely. I think quite astounding and, and obviously unthinkable without something like Fukushima as the precedent for that. But as I say, I think we are at least at the point, as a, oh, I would like to think, you know, globally, where we would be willing to, to contemplate really what this, this industry is, where it sprang from, and, and how it can be, if not eradicated, at least reformed uh, to, to something that, that makes more sense. Uh, because the, the, the industry as we know it, as we have known it, has been based on these types of reactors, which were developed hand in glove with the the nuclear weapons industries, so that's why we have the types of reactors we do running the types of fuel that they have, as opposed to say something like thorium, which is uh, which has for a long time promised to be the type of nuclear power plant that I think people were sold on fifty years ago when the Atoms for Peace project was was going along. The idea of of something that would be fundamentally stable, something that would be much 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 more, uh, much less prone to these types of events. But why? Why do they use uranium? Well, because it is something that goes hand in glove with the nuclear weapons uh, programs, and it, it can be used to process uh, fuel for the nuclear weapons. So I think that's we we with this type of disaster, we have this opportunity to actually really examine what is this industry, how did it develop to the point where it is, and how do we actually reform ourselves away from this uh, this type of basically taking time bomb to use that that illusion that that metaphor but in fact it may be more more uh, literal than metaphorical in in the case of things like fukushima so so i think um as as you indicate this is um something that that can't be allowed to happen in terms of the the status quo in terms of the industry that has literally billions of dollars invested in the infrastructure for this and then of course all of the 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 things that flow from it including its its collaboration, really, it's its hand-in-glove nature with weapons programs of, of the various nuclear powers. So there's a lot invested in the system as it exists, and it's only at times of incredible destabilization like this that we could even really start to open up that type of conversation about reform of the industry itself. Yeah, well, in, in terms of, uh, you know, Fukushima perhaps being in some small way the beginning of the end of the nuclear industry, of course, as you say, this is intimately linked to nuclear weapons, um, programs 
um, not just nuclear-powered submarines, for example, but the, you know the stockpiles of nuclear um, missiles that already exist. Uh, lots of other uses for um, uh, fissile material in weapons, such as uranium in <coughs> excuse me, armor-piercing shells and what have you, depleted uranium. Um, so, but on the other hand, despite these other um, you know military uses, we're supposed to be. We were told that you know the 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 age of you know the nuclear threat is over, and there's uh, you know nuclear weapons are being decommissioned. Um, I don't know what state that program is in globally, but we see the efforts to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear power program. You know, under the guise that they want to use the material for weapons uh, program ultimately. So, you know, is it because is even though we're told that nuclear war isn't really a feasible option anymore, never was. But is it the fact that these weapons still exist, that they've still got to somehow manage this, that, they, you know, that we've seen some countries, you know, uh, unilaterally giving up their nuclear weapons. But there's a bit of a sort of Mexican standoff going on that as long as this goes on and you've got this uh, nuclear uh, power industry that wants to keep feeding itself, that even though it would make sense to drop nuclear across the board, that that's, we've just got a very complex, messy situation here that even if it does unwind itself, it's going to take a long time and there's going to be a lot of hiccups along the way. Uh, there's no question and I think the, the, the if that is the place that we decide as a, as a society, as a civilization, as a species that we want to go, it, it, I think hiccups would be the uh, the best we could hope for. I think there would be violent death throes of this type of industry. I say industry, but of course it's tied into an entire socio-political construct uh, infrastructure that kind of undergirds it that I think makes it almost unthinkable for for, uh, certain sections of of society to to really envision the end of this type of nuclear program. And, uh, of course, we we know that the nuclear club, the nuclear weapons club, has been that type of geopolitical, I suppose, club that that they can use to club people over the head. And, and, uh, obviously, it becomes that type of... I guess, um, well, insiders only, um, uh, members only uh, area that that, that becomes uh, uh, an extremely powerful geopolitical uh, bargaining tool in various ways. So that, for example, uh, there, there's been tons of research over the years to, to demonstrate that the AQCon network that proliferated nuclear weapons to Pakistan was fully known about and uh, and watched over by the CIA even as AQCon was bringing the, the nukes to Pakistan because ultimately it, the United States wanted Pakistan to, to get the bomb. So it becomes a, 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 an explicitly hypocritical type of thing where it becomes about, well, if we if we want to allow you to have the bomb, you can have it, and if we don't, then you can't. And, uh, and there are all sorts of underhanded dealings that go on about that. And interestingly enough, in fact, just earlier this year, uh, Joseph Trento with DC Bureau came out with this exhaustive investigation. It's uh, the end result of a two two decades long investigation um, that that has proven conclusively that the United States was uh, circumventing its own laws, breaking its own laws, really, to help Japan accumulate tons of highly enriched plutonium, which was against uh, U.S. regulations and laws, that for a, a, a secret nuclear program that kind of undergirds the the Japanese nuclear program. Not that. The Japanese government has nuclear weapons at this point, but they have the the materials that basically they could switch to nuclear weapons production pretty much at a moment's notice. And uh, that's one of the reasons that Japan has 
52 nuclear reactors and such a, a well-developed nuclear infrastructure is that in the event uh, that they ever, you know, there was ever any type of disturbance over here with China, with North Korea, with all of the, the security threats uh, that, that take place here, the, the, I suppose the implication is that Japan would have been able to switch over into nuclear arms production quite easily, which is, of course, a horrific thing to contemplate and something that could never have been revealed openly to the Japanese public until quite recently, because uh, Japan obviously, for very obvious reasons, has a very has always had a very strong anti-nuclear sentiment. But it goes to show the types of geopolitics and underhanded dealings that get played as part of this, and, and I think we can't really separate the nuclear power industry from any of this, because as I say, the uranium-type reactors that have been developed were developed specifically as, as adjuncts to those nuclear programs, and that's why we have the technology we have. And until we start to put all of those pieces on the table, I don't think we as a, a society can really have that type of informed discussion about what this all means and where it's all heading. Okay, so once again, coming back, what can you tell me about this various cover-ups? Did they really take place? What do you think about it? Well, there have been a number of cover-ups that have taken place since the Fukushima incident last March, and uh, they continue to come out on pretty much a weekly basis here. So just this past week, we've had two more examples, one from the Science Ministry, which just released a report indicating that, yes, they did have accurate fallout, uh, radiation fallout predictions and forecasts that they were using to track the spread of the radiation from Fukushima from day one, from March 11th. But uh, and even though it was requested by the media on day one, on March 11th, 2011, they didn't end up providing any of that data to the media until April 25th, which has just come out in this recently released Science Ministry report. And in a recently released Education Ministry report from earlier this week, they are now apologizing to the Japanese people for having set the uh, recommended radiation exposure for children up to 20 millisieverts per year in the immediate wake of the incident which they now admit was too high, and so uh, within one month of that, they, they switched it back down to one millisievert per year. But in this new report, they don't indicate why it was set to 20 millisieverts per year, who came to that decision, how that decision was reached, or even if they consulted with any nuclear experts. So those are just some recent examples. But of course, the most important example of the cover-up that took place in the wake of the Fukushima disaster was the fact that the uh, reactors were in full meltdown, which was known about by the government literally within days of, uh, of the uh, incident taking place and was not actually reported in the media for months afterwards, which is almost unthinkable unless one really considers that the Japanese government, of course, was trying to protect its, uh, its very existence. Um, they were really quite worried at, at the way the public would react to such information, so it was definitely covered up at the time. So you think that the main reason why they were doing that just to cover themselves up, right? To kind of uh, keep their positions in force. What, what do you think were the main re reasons for that? Well, late last year, the uh, ex-Japanese Prime Minister, who was Prime Minister during the incident, uh, revealed that at the time of the incident, the Japanese government was seriously considering whether or not they would have to evacuate Tokyo, which uh, the former Japanese Prime Minister was saying would, would have been an event that would pretty much have ended the, uh, the notion that there was a functioning Japanese government at all. So it was, uh, it was almost too unthinkable to even contemplate that option, and it was immediately taken off the table. And I think the Japanese government basically threw 
screwed their lot in with uh, with going along with uh, trying to cover up the information and trying to keep people from even uh, speculating about the possibility of a Tokyo evacuation, no matter what really uh, was was taking place. And because of that, I think there was this need to to prevent even the most basic information, such as the uh, the radiation fallout forecasts, which demonstrably the government had and were using for its own purposes, but they were actively covering that up and stopping it from reaching the media. Okay, um, if you compare Japan to any other countries, um, well, I mean, uh, as so far we know that there's only been one such a huge catastrophe and it happened in Chernobyl, the one that you spoke about in the last century that you've given us, but if you compare, do you think that in any other country, I mean, um, I'm just saying about the level of the cover-up. Do you think it's beyond like any expectations, the levels of the uh, covering up all the sources and uh, the features of the disaster? Do you, do you understand what I mean? I, I do, and I think that this is not, in fact, anything that we should not have expected in the wake of such an incident. In fact, I think this is pretty much what we would expect to take place in almost any country in the world as we see the the active collusion between the nuclear industry and the supposedly uh, the supposed bodies that are regulating that industry in country after country that have been pointed out by experts all around the world including people like Arnie Gunderson at Fairwinds who's talked about the complicity between regulators in the industry in America and we see this happening all around the world so I don't think it's a particularly Japanese phenomenon but it is I think something that uh, that follows the nuclear industry around wherever it goes and stems back to such things as the fundamental collusion between the World Health Organization and the International Atomic Energy Agency, which has an agreement that they've had since the 1950s to to not interfere with each other's work, which in the WHO's case means that they are not really able to to talk about or to uh, to do studies on the effects of nuclear radiation because that's seen to be the IAEA's work. So it, it, in so many ways, the regulators are kept separate and kept apart from the nuclear industry that it fosters this type of environment that in a nuclear crisis pretty much guarantees this type of functioning of a, uh, a thoroughgoing and institutional cover-up. Right, so they don't have any connections between each other, though they kind of should have one, but they don't have it. Um, have you heard about this story about the fish, the radioactive fish coming to the U.S. shores? Yes, that's right. So as I understand it, last month there were some uh, bluefish tuna that were detected off the coast of California that now have cesium-134 and cesium-137 from the Fukushima disaster. And uh, this fallout is is moving faster than, than was expected. In fact, this is uh, this is not the fallout directly. This is the, the fish obviously transporting it across the, the Pacific faster than it could have moved just on the tidal currents. But uh, it is an indication of what is coming. Uh, and obviously, there is uh, still a large amount of radiation. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of the fallout from Fukushima took place in the ocean, and that is making its way to the West coast of the U.S. even as we speak. Right, so we're going to have, you think, and you believe that we're going to have more um, reminders coming to the U.S. shores of what happened last year. We certainly are. In fact, of course, the first debris has already started washing up on the shores of Canada and the U.S., so I think we're just going to be seeing more and more of that, and of course that is the reminder of the the more important and more uh, silent uh, and potentially deadly uh, radiation, which is really, of course, invisible, but is going to be the real harbinger of what what took place last year and what is uh, still unfolding even as we speak here in Japan and really across the world, but of course, uh, especially in Western uh, United States.
Okay, thank you. That, that was good. Thanks a lot. Excellent, no problem. Yeah, could you start out by telling me what do we know about the consequences for the environment, like the sea and the land? What what do we know about these consequences from the from the accident last year? Well, unfortunately, we don't have any uh, firm answers to that that question right now. We don't know exactly what the consequences, uh, long term consequences, are going to be, and that's at least in part because we don't know exactly what what has happened, how much uh, radiation has leaked. And this is uh, a, a number of factors play into this, but unfortunately, some of it seems to be that uh, that the ad ac accurate numbers about how much radiation was released simply haven't been forthcoming from the the Japanese government or TEPCO, and we see indications of that from the way that this all played out from from the very inception of the disaster itself. We saw, for example, at the very beginning of the uh, disaster, TEPCO was was estimating that there would be somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, uh, um, some something like 4,000 uh, terabecquerels of, of radiation released. Um, that was quickly revised upwards. It was almost tripled uh, within the next couple of months when Jap the Japanese government and TEPCO were coordinating on the disaster. And at that time, they estimated that there would be something in the neighborhood of 10% of the overall radioactive emissions of Chernobyl released from the Fukushima disaster. But uh, that was contradicted last year by a report from the Nor Norwegian Air Institute, which estimates that there would be as much as 40% of the overall radioactive materials from Chernobyl released from Fukushima. Fukushima. And as far as I know, there's never been a, a direct assessment of that from the Japanese government. So, so again, even how much radiation has been released is still up in the air, to use a, uh, an unfortunate term in this case. Um, but of course, we, we know that vast amounts of radiation have been released, and the long-term consequences are still a matter of, of some debate. Uh, there has been a significant effort to try to make uh, the, the residents of Fukushima certainly feel uh, more comfortable uh, with the idea that this is not going to, to permanently damage the area of Fukushima and that uh, the only the evacuation zone itself has really been permanently affected. But uh, uh, we see a deep distrust here in Japan from the, the public and a, a pretty uncharacteristic distrust of these pronouncements from the government. So that, for example, we've had uh, rumors and reports that, uh, that abortions in the Fukushima prefecture area have been uh, greatly increasing over the past year as uh, women in the area have been very worried about what their babies uh, would happen to their babies if they were to have them in that environment. Uh, but as far as I know, there's been no official release of statistics or studies um, either proving or disproving the, those uh, reports. So again, there's a lot of information that we're not getting and, not, and is not being delivered and communicated in a clear fashion to, to be able to make the assessment of really what's happening and what the effects are going to be on the people there. And how, how come it's so difficult to actually, uh, to actually tell us how, how bad the damage has been? 
There is more than a strong indication that uh, the, this has to do with the nuclear energy industry in Japan and its ties to the uh, to the Japanese government and specifically the the ministry that was in charge of uh, regulating uh, the, the nuclear industry here. So there's uh, there's even a term in in Japanese amakudara, which basically translates into uh, descent from heaven. So it's the idea of the revolving uh, the the glass the revolving door at the top for senior executives at the uh, at the regulatory um, agencies to to be be able to basically retire into uh, lush positions in the industry that they're supposedly regulating after they're done their uh, their stint at the regulatory body, so that uh, it becomes a, a system whereby the nuclear industry is uh, is really working in conjunction with the Japanese government instead of the government trying to regulate it, which is uh, uh, something that that's been confirmed in numerous different ways, but uh, but e- even extends of course beyond the, the boundaries of Japan itself. And we have even American nuclear industry whistleblowers like Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Associates, who has come out and said that he uh, personally knows of uh, science scientists who have been attempting to publish research about the uh, the release of radiation and other aspects of the disaster in Fukushima, who have specifically had their uh, their articles rejected from numerous scientific journals because of. Uh, nuclear energy industry pressure on those journals not to publish those reports. So I think we've seen a number of indicators that there is uh, serious uh, economic interests that are suppressing some of the data, and uh, I, obviously there's a, there's a number of reasons that the Japanese government wouldn't want the the public to to panic or to overreact in their their view to what uh, is a situation they hope they can keep under control. So in your opinion, there might actually be a number like. The data might be there, but um, because of different interests, it hasn't been released. In some ways, we actually already know that there has been a deliberate cover-up of some of the information. Uh, For example, earlier this month, the Japanese Science Ministry released a report that now admits that they had the uh, radiation fallout prediction data from their their system. They have a radiation uh, fallout uh, prediction system in place for this type of nuclear emergency that was producing data on radiation fallout dispersion, where it was likely to go, the amount of radiation that was likely to fall in different areas that was in place and it was functioning uh, right from the beginning, the onset of this disaster, but they deliberately held that data back for over two months. They didn't actually start releasing it till the end of May. And uh, that was confirmed earlier this month in the Japanese Science Ministry uh, report where basically they apologized to the public for having kept that from the media. So so we know that this has been going on in certain uh, in certain extents. And, and again, it's a question of what, uh, knowing that we don't know some things, but not knowing what we don't know overall, it makes uh, for a very difficult situation. And I think that accounts for a lot of the, the very real frustration that a lot of Japanese citizens are now beginning to display uh, over the entire handling of this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, could you tell me a bit about what we know about the health issues for both workers and the population at this, at this time? Well, again, the official uh, line on this is that there has been uh, no deaths as a direct result of this, and uh, and there has been no serious long-term consequences from this disaster. That's the official uh, policy of, of what's being stated by the government. But uh, again, there's a lot of people who are skeptical of that. There have been reports of uh, workers who have who have dropped dead of heart attacks, uh, who had no history of heart troubles, and, and other reports like that that, again, are uh, uh, on a case-by-case basis, they, they can't really be assessed uh, for for those types of 
um, uh, greater ramifications. But as a whole, I think the Japanese public is starting to become skeptical about the uh, the ways that this is being treated. And uh, for example, just this week, a new report uh, came out about a study that was conducted late last year that showed that uh, there is increased amounts of cesium, radioactive cesium, in the in the urine of children and even infants in the Fukushima area. But again, um, the official line is that this is not does not pose a significant human health hazard to to those children uh, because children have high metabolisms and are able to process that out of their system very quickly. So it, it doesn't pose any harm. But again, of course, uh, parents in the area are quite concerned and and have I think some justifiable reason to be because once again we've seen, for example, the education ministry in the immediate wake of the uh, the, the disaster started to to set the the maximum allowable level of radiation exposure for children at school to a uh, to a- the upper limit of what's uh, allowed for nuclear workers uh, over the course of a year, 20 millisieverts per year, which uh, they did in the immediate wake of the disaster. And after one month of that, after the outrage from many parents in the area, they set that back down to one millisievert per year. So they dropped it by a factor of 20. Once again, the education ministry came out with a report earlier this month explaining that and basically apologizing to the public for having done that. And to, and to have stirred up panic, but uh, not explaining why they came to the conclusion they did of what would be an acceptable radiation exposure level for children and why they changed it so suddenly. So there's been a very, very uh, um, a lack of, of you know, signals from the government in terms of clearly why they are making the decisions they are, what data is being released, and what data is being held back. So we see a, a rising anger in the public that's now being vented in the issue over the restart of the OI nuclear reactor and the other nuclear reactors in Japan, all of which are currently offline for routine maintenance and um, aren't, are they are, the Japanese government is attempting to bring them back online, but is meeting with significant re- uh, resistance from Japanese citizens. And, and this, uh, this great resistance, what I've been reading is also that, that even though these are being, do you say turned on again or started up again, mm-hmm. um, nowhere is a found like a hundred percent guarantee that this will never happen again. Um, with that in mind, how is it even possible for a, for a government to say we're going to start this up again, but we can't, we will, we won't make any guarantee that this can't not happen again? H- how is that even possible with such a great, like, with such a big disaster? Well, well, quite clearly, it isn't possible for the government to ask the the people to simply accept that the nuclear reactors will be safe now in the in the wake of Fukushima. Especially because it's still not clear in the exact, precise details of what malfunctioned and when and in what way and how each system was affected. To the point where, for example, earlier today, a new report was released indicating that uh, one of the Japanese Atomic Energy Agency workers has come out with a new study uh, uh, theorizing that the reactor number two suppression chamber actually failed during the earthquake itself, not as a result of the tsunami, but during the earthquake and released radioactive substances at that time. And if that's true, then that will change the uh, the way that uh, the Japanese government will have to think about some of the other similar reactors that are around the country, because that same design is used in a number of different reactors throughout the country. So even at this point, they're not exactly sure of all of the details of how these uh, these reactors failed. And uh, and so obviously, I think any reassurance they, they attempt to give to the public about the restarting of these reactors is is hollow reassurance for for a lot of people who are still have a lot of questions about what happened. But then why are they deciding to set them up again when they can when they can't even say this is the reason it went wrong? 
if they haven't fixed that, how can they start it up? Like the whole economic aspect, could you talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Well, well, I think it's it's quite evident that the the entire Japanese energy paradigm has been based for so many years on the assumption that there is the need for nuclear energy and that that. Uh, need for nuclear energy will only increase in the future, so that projections of the amount of uh, the market share of nuclear energy in the in Japan's energy industry, w- it was projected to increase by by quite a bit by uh, between here and uh, say 2020. Um, so so there has been that uh, that momentum behind the nuclear energy industry here for a long time. And uh, one of the interesting aspects of this entire disaster is that because these uh, plants are being taken offline for maintenance and because of the protest, they haven't been be- being put back online. So we've actually been nuclear free in Japan, uh, nuclear energy free here in Japan for the first time in, in decades uh, for the last several months. And uh, what this actually has shown is that the, the most... Uh, doom and gloom forecasts of people who are predicting vast energy shortages are are in fact perhaps not correct about that. That in fact Japan is able to to meet its energy needs without nuclear power. Uh, so as an example of that, people in the western part of the main island here in the Kansai region were being told at the beginning of the year uh, that there was going to be as much as a 25% shortfall between the amount of energy that could be pr- uh, produced and the amount of energy demanded during the summer uh, peak usage times of for energy. But uh, that was quickly revised downward after a lot of public skepticism to 14% uh, shortfall. And uh, and just last month, there was a, a local group in Osaka that did their own estimate that showed as much as a 2 or 3% uh, surplus in energy, despite the fact that there is no nuclear energy online because of conservation efforts, because of uh, other methods that were being brought online. And, of course, this also gives the, the Japanese uh, citizenry as a whole the chance to spec- to reflect a little bit on, on the need for nuclear energy at all. Uh, one of the uh, great uh, resources of Japan is this geothermal energy, obviously a very volcanic country, a lot of geothermal energy to be used. And currently, Japan is only exploiting 0.1% of its geothermal energy, producing about 500 megawatts a year. And even the Japanese government admits that they could quite easily uh, increase that by a factor of 30 if they actually started using some of the geothermal energy here. So uh, certainly that's that's an option, and as well as uh, Kawasaki Heavy Industries and other companies are now beginning to invest in tidal power generation technology, which uh, it is, would be a remarkable breakthrough, obviously, for an island country like Japan if if that type of energy could uh, come online. So I think the nuclear energy and uh, and a lot of the, the energy industry that's invested in that technology has a lot to lose if the Japanese public starts to demand uh, different forms of energy production and starts to realize that nuclear energy isn't needed. And so I think they want to bring these uh, plants back online as quickly as possible to make sure that, uh, that the momentum behind the nuclear energy industry doesn't wane in the event of this disaster. Okay, so, so just uh, to make sure that I understand you correct, you're actually saying that the reason they're they're starting these up again so so fast or so quickly after this disaster is in a way to prevent the the population from getting like getting even more doubts about the whole nuclear thing. That, that's right, okay. and I think uh, okay. this, this has also kind of come out in, in various ways. There's been uh, a lot of international pressure on the Japanese government uh, to make sure that these these plants are restarted from various international organizations and bodies that have uh, themselves industrial interests in the nuclear energy industry. So I think 
there's a, there's been a lot of um, a pressure on the Japanese government to get these plants restarted so that the nuclear energy industry in Japan isn't ultimately affected. And uh, and we've seen, for example, just in the uh, the recent announcement that they're going to start restarting these reactors, we've seen uranium prices uh, going up again. So so for example, I mean that's one very uh, specific example of of the types of economic interests that are at stake in this. So uh, so I think the Japanese government is responding to those pressures. So actually more so there's been pressure um, to start these up again more than finding out what actually caused this and, and how much has been affected and it, it, it sounds as if it's much more of an, of an economic uh, discussion or that has a lot more to say than actually what, what happened and how, did, how has it affected, like what are the consequences for the environment and well, the I population. Think that I think that's certainly the way that the Japanese citizenry is looking at it now at any rate. I think there's a lot of skepticism about the government's aim in all of this. And that comes advisedly as well because, for example, we learned uh, late last year that the former prime minister, Naoto Kan, who was the prime minister during the crisis, uh, was, for example, being advised that it may be necessary to evacuate Tokyo in the event of the worst possible scenario at Fukushima. And uh, basically that idea, although it was, was put on the table as, as perhaps a possible option in the event of a, a, a crisis scenario, was basically taken off the table. They said, we can't even contemplate that because it would be the end of Japan and we're not going to do that. So, so I think there's been a lot of uh, indications that the Japanese government has been doing everything in its power uh, to try to limit the scope of the disaster and limit the scope of the, the public's reaction to that, um, it, it, regardless of whether or not it would be in the be public's best interest. So, uh, so it We've seen indications of that, and I think that's certainly the way the Japanese public is coming to understand this uh, this issue. Okay, great. Thank you. That was very uh, interesting hearing your, your points of, on this. And I think that's actually that's it. here on this Friday night edition of the broadcast and we've been bringing you some information on Fukushima from uh, from yours truly being interviewed by a variety of media sources at the uh, top of the broadcast tonight, I mentioned that there's a way that you can help out if you want to help spread the word about this information. Of course, uh, do it in whatever way you want and send links or, or whatever it is that you do to get the information out. If you want to help uh, help me to get the information out specifically, um, now, as I say, there's been a lot of media interest in this subject, so I'm getting a lot of uh, interview requests from all over. If there's a podcast that you listen to, a radio show, a television show, whatever it is that you uh, listen to or watch or a way that you like to get information, that you think uh, I could be a guest on, that you would like to see me as a guest talking about this or any of the issues we talk about on CorbettReport.com, that's one way that you can help out uh, with this broadcast. Uh, so if you want to uh, get in touch with that station or with that podcast or whoever it may be and uh, suggest to them, humbly suggest that, uh, that I appear as a guest uh, talking about this subject or whatever subject it is that you want. 
On that note, uh, there's also another way to uh, to help out. If you go to the Republic Broadcasting website at republicbroadcasting.org and you click on Affiliate Relations, it'll bring you to a screen that tells you step-by-step uh, step what to do if you are uh, listening to this somewhere uh, in your local area and you want to hear Corbett Report Radio on your local radio station. Yeah, this has a step-by-step -step guide that you can use to uh, to get in touch with the, the program manager of your local radio station and uh, how to request that you hear Corbett Report Radio on it because uh, Republic Broadcasting will, uh, will be happy to set that up with the station if they're interested in doing that. And of course, I want to try to get this word out as far and wide as possible, talking about the real issues that matter, not the fluff and the pablum that they pass off as entertainment and news on most of the... Uh, uh, networks these days. So once again, if you're interested in that, just spread the word about this broadcast, about the, the uh, radio show, about the video version of the radio shows that I'm also doing now, CorbettReport.com slash videos. Hope you're going there to get those videos and spreading those links around. Um, again, I'm trying to make this as, as widely available as possible, and I'm doing as much as I possibly can, so I hope you guys will help out with that. And of course, the other way, uh, unfortunately, we live in a monetary system where uh, everything is, revolves around money, so unfortunately, I need to live and eat as well. So if you want to support me that way, and if you're able to, if you have a PayPal account, I never recommend that people sign up for a PayPal account to support me, but if you already have one, why not uh, put those uh, useless green pieces of paper to work in helping to uh, to keep me in house and home. So if you uh, do want to sign up, you can sign up for my subscriber newsletter, which comes out every Saturday, and once a month there's a subscriber-only video, and so tomorrow, the, uh, the in tomorrow's newsletter, there will be a subscriber-only video. This week, I'm going to show you the birthplace of the Corbett Report, the apartment where I, it all started, and ruminating on uh, the way that the Corbett Report has grown over the years, and how humbled I am to be a part of all of this. So, uh, so again, uh, if you want that, uh, that also includes my International Forecaster article that I write every week, and it includes recommended reading and viewing, discounts on the DVDs that I sell, and of course, if you want to purchase a DVD, that also provides you with information that you can use to spread this word to others, and uh, it also helps me to keep, uh, keep food on the table and a roof over my head. So uh, once again, this is all possible thanks to you guys out there. I hope you are checking FukushimaUpdate.com on a daily basis for the latest news and information on that. Subscribe to the Twitter to keep up to date with it. And on that note, uh, we've got another big broadcast uh, lined up for you next week. All sorts of guests and uh, interesting topics, so I hope you'll join us for that. Until then, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, signing off. Take care. <laughs>